is a place where people get excited about God. You know, when you think of what are people doing today, where are they right now, what do they do during the course of the week, we come together because we're excited about God. And having a worship service like this is the opportunity where we can learn more of Him, we can appreciate Him more, and we can raise our high praises to God Almighty, who became our personal Lord and Savior, and we can sing about Him as we did earlier, He who died for me, our Lord and King. Let us hopefully be worshipful through the message that we're about to hear. If you would now turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you recall, our last message was on the 24th chapter, uh, excuse me, 25th chapter. We talked about David and uh, Abigail and Nabal. I'm skipping the next chapter, 26, simply because it's quite repetitive to the 24th chapter when David also had an opportunity to slay his uh, opponent, or you could say rival, the one that was coming after David, that is King Saul. He had the opportunity in chapter 24 to slay him. He has the same opportunity in the 26th chapter, and in both cases, he says, how can I lift my hand against the Lord's anointed? We will read something differently about David's life, and hopefully in this 27th chapter, gain some profit by it. So if you would, read along with me, or listen to me as I read, beginning in verse 1, chapter 27. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape in the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and his 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Verse 5, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant, David is calling himself a servant, to a Philistine king, he has brought 600 men with their families into enemy territory. Think about the life of David thus far that we've read in how much animosity there was towards the Philistines, how hostile they were uh, to the Jews and to Israel. And here David is lodging with them. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. And it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. Ziklag was actually a location in the southern section of Judah. Verse 7. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now, during this time, we read in verse 8, Now, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites. 
from ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiah, or against the Negev of the Kenite, which was a lie. It was deceptive. It wasn't true. Verse 11. He did not leave, this is David's tactic of deceit. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought back, to be brought to Gath. For he thought they might inform on us, or squeal on us, if, if you will, and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Let's pause for a moment and try to get our bearings here. And ask first the question, what year are we talking about here in the life of David among the Philistines with Goliath? What year are we roughly talking about here? Anybody want to throw out a date? All right. It's about 1,000 B.C. 1,000 years before Christ came is when David and Saul were going through what we're reading here in the book of Samuel. You know, when we read the Old Testament, there are challenges that we are faced with, and I'm going to give you three of them that confront us when we read the Old Testament in general. One, is that, one of them is to try to discover what is exemplary uh, in the Old Testament context of what's transpiring itself. Is this something that's to be commended or is this something that is to be condemned? Am I supposed to think positively of this or negatively of this? That's one of the challenges that we have in reading the Old Testament. Secondly, trying to discover what is normative and what do we make out of it? What do we make out of polygamy, male dominance, vicious murdering, genocide wars, purification practices, Butchering of animals, dietary restrictions, national superiority, territorial claims, and on and on. In general, it's sort of unfamiliar areas that we don't really maybe know how to connect ourselves with and benefit from them. A third challenge is, and maybe the most important, is how do we apply it to ourselves we who are in the New Testament era. First Corinthians 10 verse 11 has no hesitation to tell us about these things of the Old Testament. It says were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages is come. So there are things that are written in the old that have benefits for us in the new. And if we don't read the old, we're basically saying to the New Testament, right, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm not taking your advice. Now, who would want to say that to the inspired Word of God? Because the inspired Word tells us that we're to go to the Old Testament and from it we can learn things, get admonitions for us upon whom the end of the ages is come. 
This morning I want to talk about the zigzag and ziglag. David. Some have said that this is the lowest, lowest level of David's spiritual life is in this particular chapter. David's falsified fears leads him to seek refuge in the enemy's camp. Along with 600 families of the men that were soldiers of his. Fooling the king of the Philistines and finally deceptively raiding neighboring inhabitants, wiping out every man, woman, and child so that what he was doing could not be leaked out back to the king so that it would appear when he told him what he was doing in his escapade that the king had no reason to distrust David, that he was really a friend now of the Philistines and an enemy of the Israelites. Well, I'm not going to be concerned with that so much this morning is where I think we can get the most practical and beneficial application to ourselves. And that would be from the very first verse of the 27th chapter here where it says, David thought to himself, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape the land and go among the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me. Does David have a justification for fleeing? Are these fears enough to frighten a man of God and to go among the Philistines? It's almost embarrassing to, have, have to, have, to even have to mention this about the man that we are esteeming in our series of lectures and have to read something about this era of David's life. But as I've been saying a couple of different times, we can not only learn from the faith of Old Testament people, but we can also learn from the flaws of Old Testament people. And this certainly is a flawed time in David's biographical sketch, so to speak. Why are there no excuses for David defecting? First of all, Listen to these. Abigail said this to David, The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battle, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you, do, you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled my, for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him, that is you, David, ruler over Israel. Abigail, you could say, was like a Caiaphas and was prophesying about the future for David. What a glorious future you have. This is what we read of in the New Testament about the sure mercies of David. This was oath to David. David had been anointed by Samuel to be what? The king of Israel. David's word even about Saul's fate, which poses no threat to his future. In chapter 26, verse 10, he says, As surely as the, as the Lord lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike him, that is Saul. 
or his time will come when he will die or he will go into battle and perish. So David had an assurance that he was not going to die by the hand of Saul, nor would he take the life of Saul into his own hands, but he had confidence that God would take care of him. There's no worry about his own safety in the 26th chapter. Going back even further, Saul's words about David himself, which we preached on a couple of weeks back. Verse 20, chapter 24, I know. Saul says this to David, I know that you surely will be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Then even Saul's last words in the chapter before we read, in chapter 26, verse 25, he says, You will do great things and surely triumph. Those were the last words that were said to Saul, I mean to David, by Saul. David should have said, clear sailing now. He's not going to bother me. I have the future and hope of being king in Israel. God anointed me through Samuel for that purpose. I have no fear of anything endangering my life. He should have had that kind of assurance. He could have reflected on his past victories. He slew the lion and the bear. Of course, he slew the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, in a mighty display of God's divine usage of David. He had killed 200 Philistines, removing their foreskins. He escaped many of the javelin throws of Saul. It says that all Israel loved him. All Israel and Judah loved him. Chapter 18 and verse 15. He had experienced many cases where there were divine providences administered to David, showing that God was certainly overseeing everything. Chapter 17, verse 46, he says David's words before the champion of the Philistines and before the audience of the Philistine massive army. He says this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And he called them uncircumcised Philistines. That's a man of God. That's a man after God's own heart. And yet here we read about David defecting and going into the camp of the Philistines. And it's not the first time. Remember, this is the second time. The other time is when he pretended to be a madman. Again, he fled for his life out of fear. Fear is one of the biggest things that threatens all of us. Fear of dying, fear of being fired maybe from a job, fear from not being accepted, fearing of maybe losing our spouse uh, in various ways. All kinds of things are always swirling around our minds about fears. So why does David zigzag to ziklag? He has falsified fears. Isn't he supposed to be the man after God, after God's own heart? Look at this chart up here. And some of you medical people, you know what that is, right? This measures your heart, right? An EKG. Whereas an EEG has to do with the brain waves. This is just a simple EKG. Now, why would I display that? Because it has to do with our heart. And all of us have 
The EKG constantly is running. There's always blood flowing through our system. It goes through the organ of the heart. When the Bible talks about heart, it's not, necess- it's not particularly talking about that physical organ in our chest. It's talking about the inward man, the real you. But even that is measurable. And you know, we don't have a graph that we can put up invisibly do a checkup on ourselves, but we can take inventory of ourselves nevertheless. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves. That's something that we ought to be doing as believers. We were sort of uh, touching that a little bit this morning about walking in the versus walking in the Spirit and how there's a need for maintenance in our spiritual walk and in our lives so that we can be God-glorifying believers. It tells us in Proverbs 26-28, He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. In the words there in chapter 27, verse 1, is David thought to himself. Some of your translations would read something along the lines that David thought in his heart, which would be an equivalent expression to say, in his own mind, this is what he was thinking. And that's the problem, really, essentially, with David's defecting. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, even among you and I. I was talking to Brother Randy before the service, talking about uh, a little bit of our Sunday school and in, in the verse in Timothy where it says that about a, a widowed woman, woman, if her behavior is not what it ought to be and she falls into a very carnal lifestyle, it says, though she being alive is dead. So that a believer can actually be, be without the, so to speak, shot coming out positively. That something's going on in the inward man that's creating doubts and fears that generates a abandonment of God and a refuge to the wrong places. Someone said, in our best moments, we can never trust ourselves too little nor God too much. Let me repeat that. In our best moments, we can never trust ourselves too little nor God too much. When our feelings are raining, our faith is failing. Feelings can be so misleading. And I'm sure each of us can recall certain times in our lives that we let our feelings control us. And our feelings dictated to us what we ought to do. And our emotions were running so high we, we just speedily ran after that feeling and tried to fulfill it at that moment and later had great regrets that we rushed into something that we shouldn't have. Well, David had these kinds of fears that he plucked from his heart and said, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines then Saul's going to give up on me. Sounded like a very intelligent plan. It sounded legitimate. He was so concerned about his life 
that that's something that I think all of us want to preserve and we do everything we can. We go to doctors, we take the right medication the, for the heart, for the cholesterol, we watch the diets, we do the We do everything for self-preservation so that we can keep a healthy, ongoing life. We try to pre- preserve ourselves in that way, which is very appropriate. David thought the only way that he's going to be able to preserve his life is by basically taking things into his own hands and accomplishing his own purposes. Someone said these are some of the things and lessons that we can learn from David's defection. He sinned grievously in aligning himself with the enemies of the Lord. Who would have ever thought David would have joined hand with the Philistines and call himself a servant to them? It's ironic, isn't it? Do you ever see a Christian get away from God? A real believer that got so far away from God, you could just tell they had totally cut the wires of spiritual communion off with God. And even when you try to converse with them and, and have a little bit of a contact, you felt the alienation. Like, this person isn't where they used to be. What's happened to them? David sinned grievously in in aligning himself with the enemies of the Lord. He went second. He went to them, that is to the Philistines, without guidance from God and not wise counsel from others. Third, he learned, excuse me, he leaned on his own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Oftentimes, we're our worst enemies. We're the violent man within us that doesn't make favorable or positive or proper choices. Fourthly, he gave way to unbelief. All of the reasons that he had to be confident that God was going to preserve his life and that he would ultimately receive those sure mercies that God had promised him of being the king, the anointed one, who would reign over the people of Israel both the Judah and the Israel part of the nation that says they all loved him. They all loved him. They shouted, David has slain his uh, ten thousands. Saul only the thousands. He had high esteem among his fellow Israelites. Fifth, prayer is absent totally from David's choices here. His faith seems to be absolutely silenced. Sixthly, the Holy Spirit obviously was grieved, leaving David to himself. Woe unto us if we do not, as we were talking in Sunday school, have a maintenance check and be sure that we're living and walking in the Spirit, lest the flesh overtake us. And it's so easy, isn't it, to fall into those ruts and defect ourselves from the things of God. You know, when un Belief dominates us. God's forgotten. We'll want our own ease unless divine grace interposes itself upon us. We'll seek relief in the wrong quarters and by unspiritual means. You see, when a believer is out of communion with God, he's controlled by unbelief. They don't want to act according to what is even common sense. 
what David, not only did he do wrong, but he led others down the same path. Watch out, those of you especially that have been held or are held in high esteem. To him that much or to her that much is given, much is required. Believe it or not, you're being watched. And I don't mean in some kind of a vigilante fashion, but I mean people are watching you and learning from you one way or another. And those that claim to be or should be leader-like people in the manner in which they live, the way they talk, etc., that's going to be something imitated by those who follow you or who look up to you or regard you highly. Matthew Henry says, Unbelief is a sin that easily besets even the best of men. Unbelief. Calvin said that there's no one that doesn't have some degree of unbelief in their heart. For years, I think I would have said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true. But I think as I get older and more experienced, I see it in others, I see it in myself, and I say, yes, I see that. And I often pray to the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, wouldn't that have been great for David to say, Lord, my back's against the wall. This Saul keeps chasing me. Help me, Lord. What a difference that could have made. Maybe the Spirit would have delivered to his mind all these promises that were made to him, that Abigail had made, that Saul even made, that others had told him of, the victories that he accomplished by, by God's operations through him would have all come to the forefront of his mind and there would have been no necessity for him to have flown away like he did. The Bible says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence. The chart again. Keeping the heart in Proper rhythm spiritually with God is so key. So then how do we overcome our feelings? We are all feeling oriented. Feelings are part of our humanity. They're unavoidable. You have better days than other days. You have better feelings some days than you do other days. You have certain senses that you have about certain things sometimes that you don't have at other times. So feelings are a big thing in our life. And it's just what's born into us. But what we have to do is we have to dovetail the Word of God and the Spirit of God in with our feelings. You would never think that somebody like Charles Spurgeon would have suffered from depression. Severe depressions at times. Look it up on the internet and go to Amazon. You'll find the book about Spurgeon's sorrows, I believe, is what is, what is titled. Very instructive and very helpful. It is a battle. And some have greater battles than other people do have with their feelings and trying to, to uh, subvert them so that they don't become the rule and reigning factor over their lives' directions. After all, it does say about believers, doesn't it, that the just shall live by feelings? No. The just shall live by faith. Now, not that faith doesn't have feelings. Someone says, we're not saved by our feelings, but when you're saved, you feel it. I think it's just sort of a human way of putting a face on conversion. 
We're not basing our salvation on our feelings, but it's unavoidable that we feel it. We know ourselves to be the Lord's. The Holy Spirit has been put in us as a witness, an objective witness to you and I that we belong to Him. Rather than me having to depend upon myself in my subjective feeling, I thank God I can depend on the outside reliable source of the Holy Spirit who is born within me, adopts me into His family, and gives me this assurance that Jesus is mine and oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We're told to walk. This is how we can overcome our feelings. We can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Sometimes our problems get so mountainous that we don't think there's any alternative than what comes to the mind and what comes out of the heart when it's unchecked. It's so easy to let that be a ruling factor. David himself had those kinds of experiences in his life. Not just here, but elsewhere. Mountains of problems, situations that arise that causes reasons to maybe question the intervention of God in one's life. I'm reading through Job right now. Every time I read through Job, I always get amazed at Job's full honesty with God and his real inward feelings about what's transpired in his life. And I listen to his friends that are sort of trying to reason this out with him and trying to point out, pointing the finger really at him and saying, there's some flaws in your life, Job. And this is why, why God in His just ways has brought these things upon you. He would, they were forcing Job to have to say, I'm maintaining my integrity. Now, Job wasn't 100% innocent and he would never say that, but he was titled to be a man of God and one who was walked uprightly and eschewed evil. And you would see he would be the last man that God would pick on, so to speak, and bring these trials. But it brought out something far better than what the trial itself was in the end. It showed the patience of Job and God's long-suffering and the ultimate reward that he received at the end. How then can we overcome our feelings? Colossians says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Man, I want to underline that word, highlight that word. I want to punctuate that. I want to put asterisks around it. Dwell in you richly. It's one thing to have the Word of the Lord dwelling in us, but to have it dwelling in us richly. When Jesus says, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's the kind of richness that we need to gain from the Scriptures. That's how we can strive against sin. David says, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. How valuable the Scriptures are in times when our feelings want to reign over us. The psalmist said, Psalm 73, not a Davidic psalm. Verse 26 of that chapter says, When my flesh and my heart fails. I think we can all raise our hand that we've had times in our Christian lives, in our Christian walk, when our flesh and our heart fails us. But it goes on to say, But God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. 
In 1 John 3.20 it says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Wow. We don't have to lean onto our own understanding. We don't have to lean on ourselves. But we need to learn to know how to lean on God. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. He will save you. He will save you now is how the Gospel was presented. Trust Him. He'll save you. Now that He saved you, do we give up trust? Does does the train just run on the track on its own? No, He has installed us with this divine power to be able to live for Him because it says He lives in us. He dwells in us. So let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? In all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Building each other up. One of the best ways to avoid letting feelings dominate you is to share your feelings with someone else. Make yourself accountable to somebody. Say, brother, boy, can you help me out, sister? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking these, these thoughts. Um, and, and help me. That's a great thing to do. To reach out. That's what we should be doing for one another. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart. And that strength can come from the Lord even through one another. As we sing and make uh, 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 share wisdoms and teachings and admonitions with one another, that will allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us more richly. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that by two immutable things in which it was possible for God to lie that we may be able to lay hold on the hope which is set before us, even the anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast. Sure and steadfast. How? By observing and looking at Christ constantly. He is our anchor of our soul. Now, you and I, like David, David had something to go on. David didn't, didn't need to just depend upon his own feelings about the matter, and his own judgment was, Saul's going to get me. Saul's going to get me. I have no other alternative than to flee into the arms of the Philistine camp for safety. He got that under his hat. He didn't get that from the Lord. God was telling him just the opposite. And that's oftentimes the case. We can battle against the Lord, against His promises. For instance, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us, God says that He'll never leave us. He says that we have the love of God, that that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have to segregate ourselves from the love of God that He's put within us. And all of these various things, tribulations, trials, and whatnot, that seems to kind of cut the cord of communion with God. God's saying, I'm through all of that. I'm there. You have a cord that's an unbreakable one. And that's the one that we need to be holding on to. We need to stand on the promises of God. All the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. All the promises of God. We sing the song sometimes, standing on the promises of Christ my Savior. That's what we should be doing, standing on those promises. Well, in summary, this chapter 
is an unfortunate one in David's life. The zigzagging. It seems like David goes on, and this is sort of typical of his life, and maybe of yours too. And this is why I think I can say we can learn from his flaws. And though you may have taken a wrong turn, maybe you've turned into the camp of Ziklag too in your life, or maybe you have been thrown off the pathway. Praise God, a righteous man falls seven times but gets up. We don't stay down because we have a forgiving God, an all-the-way-home God, amazing grace that saves a wretch like me, and that grace will what? Lead me home. Home. When trials and troubles seem to be overflowing us, there's a rock that's higher than I. Some want to go to a crack cocaine rock and try to find some sort of peace in their hearts. It won't do. It's only Christ that can fully satisfy the heart. And David had a hard lesson to learn. He pays prices for it throughout his lifetime for zigzagging. And by going into Ziklag, we'll find out later what had transpired there and how the city had been ransacked on one of his escapades when he had come back from it, he discovered that they, his family and all their goods had been kidnapped away. David had an awakening. An awakening. Hopefully we can prevent our zigzag life by walking in communion with the Lord daily. And you know, if you feel yourself starting to slip, say to yourself, read your your EKG, as it were. Measure yourself spiritually and say, where am I going? What direction am I heading? Am I going around this mountain and I'm, I'm far from the boundary line of crossing into the, to the new Canaan land of promise that flows with milk and honey? Or am I heading in the Egyptian direction down south? You're either heading north or you're heading south. Ask yourself, where are you going in your Christian life and in your walk? David poses to us an example of someone that took his eyes off the promises of God. He he lost his fervor for the Lord. And God at this time had no place in his spiritual walk and in his life. That can happen to you and I. And I bet if you thought long enough and if you've been saved long enough, you would know somebody that you really believe was saved. And now you say, I don't know if I can really say they are saved. Because of the way... And I'm not saying that they, that they are or aren't. I'm just saying that a real believer can get really spiritually deadened in their life so that spiritual things don't have the same igniting force and power that it did at one time in their life. And there are lots of factors. Over the years, ministering to various people, I sometimes have, in, in my heart, looked down at them because of the direction that they have been going or go. And then I, I, I pause to say, I wonder how I would handle what they had to handle. When their wife says, I don't love you anymore and I'm out of here. Or, you know, we don't need you anymore in the company you're gone. Or family member dying suddenly in their presence or something of that sort. That we should be in 
think we can be able to handle things that like that with spiritual ease. But the reality is that we still are composed of the natural man too that has to have mourning periods. It has to go through the trials. And Paul exhibits it in his life and he describes it without, without question. Talks about the trials that are within, the fears that are within, the trials that are without, how he was beaten, how he was thrown into the sea. He had no certain dwelling place. He says, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Cast down, but not destroyed. Thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus. The promise of God is that I'll never leave you or forsake you. We, he gives unto us eternal life. We shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. For my Father who gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So what a wonderful position and place to be in the Father's hand. It will never release us. You know, there's, I think it's the monkey family, but I could be wrong. But when fears come, I remember having heard this story by an elder who, who ta- told me this as a teaching tool. He says, you know, the monkey, when a threaten, threatening animal comes in its territory with its little ones, it will reach for them and will put them with them rather than the other way around. Rather than the little ones being scared and clinging to the mother, the mother will bring them into her presence and keep them in her possession so that we don't have to feel like God is just leaving us to our own fears with whatever's threatening to us, but rather He's carrying us through that threat so that we have that kind of protection, we have that kind of security that He has bounded us into His own life so that with Him we can be overcomers and get through situations like this. Zigzagging to ziklag. Let's not let our fears be falsifying all the factors of truth. That God is a promising God. That He is a steadfast God. God is for us and not against us. Let's not leave Him out of the equation and think that we are the ones that can do it or I'm going to do it my way. Let's let God enter into our lives and let Him be the controlling factor rather than letting our, uh, our feelings reign over us. Let grace reign through righteousness in our lives and we will be able to avoid those zigzags in our lives that could take us into enemy territory and we find ourselves becoming servantile to them and we become just like them. And isn't that what David feared when he says, Lord, be not thou silent to me, lest if thou be silent, I become like them that got down to the pit. God is not silent to us. We are really silent to Him. And we need the to have the communion a cable, so to speak, open between us and the Lord and let Him speak so that we can fulfill His purposes in our lives. So may the Lord help us in learning something from a flaw in David's life that is not imitable by us, but something that we can use as a learning tool. In that first verse that David decided in his own heart what he ought to do and as a result of leaning on himself, 
he ended up in a heap of problems. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word, that it is so instructive, O God. Thank You that it brings us ultimately back to the Lord Jesus, who's the, the one that we're told to look to, the pioneer of our faith, the finisher too of our faith. And so, Lord, we thank You that a greater than David has come that we can look to. One that did not zigzag in his earthly ministry and in his earthly life down here. Lord, help us, Father, to not allow our feelings to have dominance over our faith. That, Lord, we would not give place to the flesh, but rather to the Spirit. As we want to be governed, Lord, by You and do those things that are pleasing in Your sight. So, Lord, we give You the worship, praise, and thanksgiving, all in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.